Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 4.8, Socialism Part 3, Russia. Hello and welcome back to uh, Musings on History. I know it's been a while since the last episode, so I'm very pleased to finally bring you this episode. Um, Before I start, I want to dedicate this episode to my good friend Clifton Brown III, known to most as Cliff or Tank. Cliff and I bonded over a lot of things, but history was probably the most important thing. Uh, we were both history majors, and we love uh, sharing books on all aspects of history. Cliff always supported me and this podcast, and I'll be continuing it in honor of him. So without further ado, today's episode will be covering Russian Socialism. Someone once described Russia as a mystery inside of an enigma wrapped up in a puzzle. I once tried learning Russian, and that person was entirely not wrong. Russian socialism, like Russian history in general, has taken a different path than the rest of Europe. In fact, until Peter the Great forced the Russian boyars to cut their beards and start dressing in Western style, among other things, Russia wasn't genuinely considered to be part of Europe, even though the czars considered the Russian Empire to be the Third Rome. So background on that, Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire from 285 when Emperor Diocletian split the empire into Greek-speaking East and Latin-speaking West. This continued until 1453 when Constantinople fell to the Seljuk Turks. When Rome fell to the Germanic general Odacer in 476, Constantinople then became the second Rome. After the fall of Constantinople, the Tsardom of Russia became the largest and most powerful Christian state in the world since the Aryan Mongols had started to fade by then, hence the styling of Third Rome. So the Tsardom of Russia had been led by the Roman of dynasty since 1613, and reigned by divine right in autocratic fashion. The Tsardom grew from the lands of the Duchy of Muscovy to, at its peak, extending from the Arctic Ocean in the north to the Black Sea in the south, the Baltic Sea in the east, and what's now Alaska and Northern California in the west. After Peter the Great's modernization and westernization campaign of the 18th century, A Russian intelligentsia formed who were influenced by the ideas of the Enlightenment and the Utopian Socialists. But since Russia was one of the last remaining autocracies in Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries, many, such as Mikhail Bakunin, Peter Kropotkin, Viktor Chernov, Leon Trotsky, and Vladimir Lenin, were exiled to other parts of Europe, particularly Paris, London, and Geneva. There, these Russian exiles mixed and mingled and sometimes beef with other European socialists like the legendary Marx versus Bakunin showdown that split the first international. 
So in the 1860s, after the emancipation of the serfs during the reign of Alexander II, a group called the Narodniks were a group of middle-class Russians who agitated for reforms and revolutionary actions uh, against the Tsardom. Their name comes from the Russian word Narod, which means people, and the Narodniks melded together class consciousness with Russian populism, which influenced most of the other Russian socialist movements that came after it. The Narodniks read the works of Alexander Herzen, who was called the father of Russian socialism, and Nikolai Chernyshevsky, and in time were split into two groups, critical Narodniks, who were flexible in their stances on capitalism, and doctrinary Narodniks, who believed that agrarian economies like Russia had no use for capitalism. So they weren't like historical materialists, basically. The Narodniks are notable because they felt that the newly emancipated Serbs who made up the bulk of the peasantry would be the revolutionary vanguard. They spread propaganda in the 1870s in what was called the going to the people movement, but they found very little success since very few of the Narodniks were peasants themselves and thus the peasants didn't find them very relatable. The Narodniks were viewed by suspicion, with suspicion by the czarist authorities, and they were arrested and exiled in large numbers, which led to more militant Narodniks forming a re- revolutionary group called People's Will. People's Will used terrorist tactics to show that the czar was not a godlike figure. And in March 1881, they were responsible for the assassination of Tsar Alexander. They threw a bomb in his carriage. This move backfired on people's will because Alexander II was a reformist czar, which his nobility did not appreciate. And he was beloved by the peasants who called him the liberator. So after his death, his son Alexander III reversed pretty much all of his reforms and drove many of the Russian intelligentsia out of the country or into Siberian exile. So people's will also tried to assassinate Alexander III And among the conspirators in one assassination was Alexander Sasha Ulyanov, who was the elder brother of Vladimir Lenin. Ulyanov was later hanged for his part of the assassination attempt. And this was one of the major events that led to the radicalization of Vladimir Lenin. Chapter 2, The Rise of Bolshevism and the Fall of the Tsar. The 1890s saw the death of Alexander III and the ascension of his son Nicholas as Tsar Nicholas II, who would be the last Tsar of Russia. Tsar Nicholas, haunted by the assassination of his grandfather and later his uncle, Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich, tried in the early years of his reign to restore true autocracy to the empire, but his popularity steadily dropped and dropped drastically after Russia's disastrous performance in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. In 1904, Grigory Grishuni, a Jewish socialist and labor unionist, founded the Socialist Revolutionary Party, and the following year, the SR Combat Organization, a secret terror subgroup, was given autonomy to carry out political assassinations in their name. It was the SRs who assassinated Grand Duke Sergei. Nicholas's luck took another turn for the worse in January 1905 when unarmed protesters led by the Russian Orthodox priest and labor leader, uh, Georgi Gapon, 
marched on the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg in a last-ditch attempt to present a petition to the Tsar, and they were fired on by soldiers. This was called Bloody Sunday, and the events of Bloody Sunday led to massive strikes and military mutinies across Russia and the creation of the first Soviet or Workers' Council. And I'm going to struggle with these names. Ivano? Ivanovo, uh, which was called the Revolutionary Revolution of 1905. So these Soviets were unique because they were composed of workers across industries. And when they went on strike, all production in Russia ground to a halt. In order to end the strikes, Nicholas and his first prime minister, Sergei Vita, issued the October Manifesto, which granted basic civil liberties like freedom of assembly and right of redress, and also created the Duma, which was an elected government body whose job it was to check the power of the Tsar. The the Duma was deeply flawed because the Tsar had the right to veto any legislation and also to dismiss the Duma if the Tsar and the Duma weren't unable to come to terms on legislation after a certain amount of time. With some prodding by reactionary elements in the nobility, Tsar Nicholas ended up rolling back most of the reforms of the October Manifesto and instigating a violent repression of intellectuals, Jews, socialists, and workers' groups in newspapers. The election of the Duma did proceed, but the institution was packed with conservatives and some pretty spineless liberal Democrats, so it wasn't much help. Chapter 3 1917. The Russian Revolution of 1917 began during World War I. Russia had entered the war on August 1st, 1914, after the German Empire declared war. Tensions between the German states and Russia had run high since the 1700s, and Russia was also against Austro-Hungarian control over the Balkans, which have large Slavic populations. So when Austria-Hungary sent an ultimatum to Serbia after the Archduke's assassination, Austria-Hungary's ally, Germany, declared war on Serbia's ally, Russia, because why not start a war on two fronts? If the war on the Ost front, that is the Eastern front from a Western European perspective, had gone Russia's way, then Tsar Nicholas might have enjoyed a bit of a longer reign, but the losses and humiliations of the Russo-Japanese war were not really gone from the minds of many Russians, especially in the hinterlands where like most of the peasants were and where most of the troops came from. And so the Russians were not interested in losing hundreds of thousands of their boys in another war that they really had no interest in. What ended up happening was large swabs of the army mutinied and went back home and joined Soviets. And so massive strikes started to occur, starting in St. Petersburg and then spreading throughout the country. The Soviets uh, in the cities became dominated by the, the mutiny, the soldiers who had left the front and industrial workers and they took local control like you would have a Soviet that ran like a quarter of the city or something and then the Duma became the recognized provisional national government after Tsar Nicholas abdicated in March 1917 
So there wasn't a central leader during the early years of the Russian Revolution, but the Soviets were led by mostly socialists, while the Duma was mostly led by middle class and wealthy liberal Democrats, some capitalists, and some remaining constitutional monarchists. And it was these two groups that fought until 1923, when the largest group of socialists, the Bolsheviks, gained control under Vladimir Lenin. So I'd like to backtrack a little bit to explain the core differences between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. It all started during the Second Party Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party in 1903. The RSDLP had been founded in 1898, and Lenin was the chief editor of the party newspaper, Iskra. At the Second Party Congress, Lenin and his once good friend Julius Martov disagreed on who should be allowed to join the RSDLP. Lenin wanted all members of the party to have strict adherence to his interpretation of Marxism, which is now called Marxist-Leninism. Whereas Martov wanted membership open to socialist sympathizers, travelers, and pretty much all workers. The Leninism and Marxist-Leninism is outlined in Lenin's 1902 pamphlet, What is to be Done, where he argues that a revolution in Russia could only be achieved if the masses rallied around one person or a select group of individuals who would eventually relinquish power once the revolution had ended and conditions were right to disperse power to the Soviets. He adopted the stance from Marx and Engels' writings about dictatorship of the proletariat. And they got the idea from the German socialist revolutionary Joseph Weidemeyer. Fun fact about Weidemeyer, he served in the Union Army as a colonel during the American Civil War and was an early abolitionist who tried to convince Abraham Lincoln to adopt abolition into his platform when he ran for president in 1860. After the war, Weidemeyer settled in St. Louis, started a socialist newspaper, and tried to organize freed slaves and immigrants into a first international in America. So go star, Joseph Weidemeyer. So Lenin also bumped heads with Martov, Leon Trotsky, Georgi Plekhanov, and Pavel Axarod about the structure of Soviet leadership during and after the revolution. Now, I mean, I guess it's important to be thorough, but like 1902, you weren't even close to a revolution at that point. And you up here falling out with your longtime friends over like how you're going to disperse power once full communism has been achieved, which is a really, really long uh, process. So I don't even know why they was quibbling about that, but they did. And... The shit shook like it shook. Lenin was a firm believer in a rigid hierarchy, hierarchical political structure to initiate the revolution and carry it out. Once the conditions were stable, full communism, then power could be decentralized to the Soviets or communes in Proudhonist language. Lenin and Plekhanov also got into it over nationalizing land. Lenin was for the collectivization and nationalization of all land, while Plekhanov thought socialist revolution would go over better if people were allowed to own small plots of land. Basically, Lenin was like the Robespierre of the RSDLP. He was utterly devoted to Marxism and not really trying to hear what anybody else was talking about. He was also like Robespierre because he was not opposed to a little bit of dissembling if it ultimately got him what he wanted. Like, 
he would back you one day and then stab you in the back the next day as long as it was politically expedient. By the end of the Second Party Congress, Lenin's followers were called the Hards, and his opponents, who weren't just one faction but actually several, like the Bund Jewish workers or the economists, were called the Sofs. This later became the Bolsheviks, which means majority, and the Mensheviks, which means minority. The name Bolshevik is actually like some clever advertising by Lenin because he didn't actually have the majority on an abundance of issues, including party membership. But Lenin had an almost Napoleonesque ability to capitalize on any situation. So he chose Bolshevik because it made it seem like he had won against Martov on all fronts. In 1912, Lenin had another falling out with Alexander Bogdanov over the issue of imperial criticism. It's crazy to me how like Lenin could be your best fucking friend, godfather to your kids, and then you'd be like, well, I think that Marx didn't like apostrophes. And he would just be like, fuck you. I'm cutting you off. I'm done with you. You're out of the party. You're not a real communist. I hate you. Like it literally just took nothing. Imperial criticism. Like Alexander Bogdanov was his best, best friend. And they fell out over this imperial criticism. It's not that deep. But it's the Marxist-Leninist theory that human perceptions correctly and accurately reflect an objective external world. Now, the mere existence of schizophrenia kind of disproves that, so point to Alexander Bogdanov, but whatever. A little bit on Bogdanov. He was a polymath and a pretty much all-around brilliant man who quite correctly determined that the fight against capitalism would ultimately lead to a technocratic society because workers usually lack the will and knowledge to seize control of social affairs for themselves due to their conditioning by the hierarchical and authoritarian nature of capitalist production processes and the influences of religion and other social institutions. So basically what Bogdanov is saying and what Gramsci would later say is it's not so much that like everyday working people are stupid, but they have been conditioned by the other cultural institutions that shape who we are, like religions and social groups that you belong to or whatever, Kiwanis Club, Sierra Club, whatever. And people get so focused on what they do for a living. And it is true that what you do for a living does make up a pretty large and overbearing uh, part of how you conceive yourself and how others perceive you as well. And so the everyday average person just doesn't have the wherewithal or really the interest in transforming society themselves. So they kind of need to be told to do it. And that's where technocrats come in because it's like their vaunted position in society is to think things and be uh, thought leaders and write think pieces on the 90s or whatever. So, like I said, that's 
kind of like some proto-Gramscian stuff. And I say that Bogdanov was somewhat correct because I see people in this day and age lean heavily on technocrats and thought leaders to solve the political and social ills and excesses of capitalism. But rather than lack of initiative being the reason, I kind of see it as, like I said, decades of being told that change is too risky and expensive to venture, coupled with a general sense of political hopelessness under neoliberal agendas. In any case, Lenin may have not always won the ideological argument, but he did usually win the power struggle that followed as Bogdanov was expelled from the Bolshevik party in June 1909. One quote from Bogdanov that has always intrigued me was this, written in 1912, when Lenin and the Bolsheviks briefly unified with the Mensheviks to take control of the Duma. He said, every organization on achieving a position of decisive influence in the life and ordering of society, quite inevitably, irrespective of the formal tenets of its program, attempts to impose on society its own type of structure, the one with which it is most familiar and to which it is most accustomed. Every collective recreates as far as it can the whole social environment after its own image and in its own likeness. So that's basically saying like one power coalesces, which is was his takeaway from the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks uniting, despite the fact that they kind of hated each other at that point. And two, that our collective imagination is quite limited to what we're used to. So if you are a marginalized identity group in an oppressive regime and you take power, once you have power, you might have thought that you had a patent on having the upper hand and being on the moral pedestal. But once you're in power, you're mostly quite limited to what you know, which is oppress those who are different from you. And you're more or less going to recreate that, which is a little bit fatalist, but he is Russian. So what are you expecting? These words were a little bit more than prophetic, considering how authority would later be centralized in Soviet Russia, much as it did in Tsarist Russia. Tsarist Russia also had a pretty deep bureaucracy, and that is one of the hallmarks of Soviet-style socialism, the huge, vast, untenable bureaucracy. So Bogdanov was right. In the February Revolution of 1917, the All-Russian Constituent Assembly had forced the abdication of the Tsar. This led to a provisional government of the state Duma to be proclaimed as the new government in Russia, and it was led by Prince Georgi Lyov and Alexander Kerensky. The United States was the first foreign government to acknowledge the provisional government as the legitimate government of Russia, and the events that followed sowed the seeds for the Cold War. The Americans had backed Kerensky and the Liberal Democrats after the Tsar stepped down, and Lenin and the Bolsheviks ousted the Liberal Democrat provisional government in the October Revolution. The October Revolution occurred when the Soviets all convened and formed a Congress of Soviets, with many radical left socialists and Bolsheviks making up the bulk of the organization. Kerensky lost standing within the Petrograd Soviet, which had brought him to power, and Lenin and the Bolsheviks promised to address the grievances of the various Soviets. 
The first order of business, though, for Lenin, killing the Tsar and his whole family in July 1918. Lenin had not forgotten how Nikki's dad pardoned several members of People's Will, but not his brother Sasha. And he made sure to repay the favor, allowing Nikki's mother, Maria Fedorovna, or is it Fyodorovna, formerly Princess Dagmar of Denmark, to leave Russia, but not the Tsar himself or his immediate family. The liquidation, what did I say, of the last of the Romanovs, well, Romanovs that mattered, at least. There's a bunch of, like, nobody Romanovs still living in London. This angered the British, whose own ruling house was closely related to the Tsar, and the Americans, who conveniently forgot that they fought a war and shook off an empire themselves, and so the Allied governments sent arms and aid to the White Army, which was the Liberal Democrats. By 1918, as World War I was winding down to an armistice in Western Europe, Lenin and the Bolsheviks had consolidated power with the left socialist revolutionaries, various Soviets, and the short-lived Constituent Assembly, and quickly set about reorganizing Russian society through land redistribution and economic policies like the new economic policy, which was designed to temporarily jumpstart the Russian economy through market principles while maintaining state control. Under the NEP, a mixed economy developed in which small businesses were allowed to be privately run, while the state controlled large banks, agriculture, and large industries. The NEP also abolished, here goes that word, Prodravskyorska, or forced grain acquisition, and instead instituted a tax on farmers called Prodnolog, where they paid in agricultural product. The NEP ran from 1921 to 1928, when Joseph Stalin abolished it in the Great Break. Chapter 4, Stalinism. Vladimir Lenin died of a stroke in 1924, and Joseph Stalin took his place as the General Secretary of the Soviet Union. Stalin was ideologically committed to Marxist-Leninism, but in practice, his paranoid personality and general impatience made him less than committed to historical materialism. Some of Stalin's best-known policies, such as the abolishing of the NEP and and his socialism in one country policy, seem to contradict Lenin's legacy, since it was Lenin who devised the NEP to curb famine, and he who developed the Communist International or Comintern to promote socialist revolution around the world. It could also be argued that the agricultural collectivization in Stalin's five-year plans contradicted Lenin's repeal of the forced grain acquisition policy, but most historians now agree that the reinstatement of this forced grain acquisition policy was more about quelling potential revolt in Ukraine than it was about diminishing Lenin's legacy. Stalin established his own brand of Soviet-style socialism fairly quickly. The three cornerstones of Stalinism were rapid industrialization, collectivization, and a more nationalist approach to socialism. On paper, these are fairly benign, even the nationalist approach to socialism— 
I mean, to be honest, Nordic model democratic socialism, and this isn't exactly we are the world. And most of the democratic socialist parties in Europe aren't really welcoming immigrants with open arms. So, you know, the part about being a part about Stalinism being more nationalist that really blows me is Stalin was the commissar for nationalities when the USSR was founded and essentially helped create these socialist ethnostates promising in the treaty on the creation of the Soviet Union that non-Russian languages and cultures would be respected and given the same prominence as Russian. So I guess the expectation would be that he would have a little bit more concern for ethnic minorities and the needs of the other republics in the USSR. The reality was that Stalin was for the Russification of the USSR and the firm establishment of Russian identity as the unifying identity in the Soviet Union. Not because he just loved all things Russian, he was a very proud Georgian, but because he felt like the centralization of power around Moscow was the best way to keep the USSR together, and that meant suppression of other identities. His rapid industrialization policies forced many peasants off of the land and undermined the uh, the authority of the Soviet collectives. And his collectivization policies precipitated a famine that ended up killing more than just the Ukrainian nationalists he was trying to stamp out. And his hardline stances and refusal to aid the other republics, such as, uh, as the Axis powers advance, led to incidents such as Yugoslavia's break from the common form, which, in my opinion, was another Stalin creation that really wasn't needed because uh, Lenin had already created the common turn. So the common turn was to help spread socialist revolution throughout the world. Communism can't work if it's still under an umbrella of like a capitalist superstructure. It can survive but it's not, it's not the best circumstances. So the point was to spread, so, uh, to spread socialist revolution through propaganda and mutual aid. The common form was basically something that Stalin came up with to make sure that where there was socialism, it was all revolving around Moscow and more importantly, around him. Now, to round off my criticisms of Stalin and Stalinism, Stalin could be an absolute bully within the Eastern Bloc, but on several occasions before, during, and after World War II, he folded like a bitch with the West and the fascists and left communists in the Balkans and Poland in grave danger, like the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which split Poland between the USSR and Nazi Germany. This was a bitch move, and it disrespected Poland's sovereignty as well as the Baltic states and Finland, and it left large groups of communists and Jews in Nazi-controlled areas in grave danger. His rationale was that the USSR needed a fake peace with the highly industrialized and rapidly militarizing Germany so Stalin could re-secure Karelia and Sala from the Finns and then have time to industrialize and nationalize the Russian economy. While this gambit was successful, ultimately, I would have been pretty bitter if I were like a Lithuanian socialist and the Red Army was all like, you should be grateful to us because we liberated from you from the Nazis. But it's like, yeah, bitch, you also delivered me to the Nazis in the first place. So what am I being grateful for? During the war, bros, that is Joseph Tito bros, and the Yugoslavian socialists stayed allied with Stalin and 
were rewarded by having a spy network installed in their ranks, which did nothing to foster a spirit of fellowship between the Russians and the Yugoslavians, or for that matter, between Bros and Stalin. After the war, Stalin, who had seized Karelia from Finland in the Winter War, condemned Bros's efforts to seize Trieste from the defeated Italians. Now, with European borders being as porous, malleable, and ever-changing as they are, I wouldn't go so far as to make a homeland argument in either case. Karelia was then and is now roughly half Russian and half Finnish-speaking. And the same goes for Trieste. There's a lot of Slavs in Trieste, mostly Croats and Slovenes, but there are some Albanians as well. But the area had been part of the Habsburg monarchy and the free city of free city of Venice for hundreds of years, so there are a lot of ethnic Italians there as well. Moreover, by the time Bros attempted to take Trieste for the Slavs, Italy was a defeated foe, and as loyal partisans, Yugoslavia had as much right to ask for land as any of the Allied powers. I mean, everybody was picking over parts of former Axis powers. Why shouldn't Yugoslavia get a little something-something? But since the reigning Yugoslav faction post-World War II was the socialist faction, that pugno's busybody Winston Churchill, God, I hate him, had to oppose it. And the other two of the big three, Roosevelt and Stalin, decided to follow suit. Stalin was all like, we don't want to piss off the Brits and Americans because we're not in a position to fight them so soon after the war. And you know what he got for taking Churchill's side over the Yugoslav socialists? Well, I know what he didn't get. He didn't get a Marshall Plan for the devastated USSR. The Allies sunk more money into rebuilding the same Germany that had caused both world wars than they did into rebuilding the USSR, who had borne the largest cost in terms of human life with 20 million dead at Stalingrad alone and who had liberated the whole of Eastern and Central Europe from the Nazis, while the combined British-American side liberated France. I mean, and Belgium, and Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, but they like France, whatever. Anyway, Stalin continued to be a big dummy, believing whatever Churchill told him, because Roosevelt would then come back and assure him that he'd make Churchill stick to his word. And then you know what he did? He died. So when the Greek communists asked Stalin for help in the Greek Civil War, he acted like he didn't know them because his spies had told him that Joseph Tito Bros intended to absorb Albania and Greece in partnership with the Bulgarian Soviet Republic to create a second communist bloc outside of Moscow's control, which Stalin was not tolerating. Again, these actions did not engender much goodwill amongst Eastern Bloc socialists. Now, if the whole point is spreading socialism throughout the world, working together to reach full communism, does it really fucking matter if you have different blocks and not everybody is answering to like this one central place, Moscow or whoever? It really doesn't. It really just doesn't matter, but it mattered to Stalin. And that's why Yugoslavia eventually just left the common form and the common turn. Now, I did not come to drag or praise Stalin. I came to bury him. In addition to being a paranoid tyrant who was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands in the Great Purge and the Holodomor, 
He was a crafty politician who knew how to read the field sometimes and make pragmatic decisions that more often than not preserved the socialist state, the Russian socialist state, at least. Stalin understood the precariousness of the USSR situation, both within and internationally, and the decisions he made had an element of survivalism to them. According to the Marxist theory of productive forces, also called productive force determinism, technological advancement is what leads to changes in the social culture. To some, this meant that a strengthening of the productive forces was a condition for the realization of socialism, and that view was expounded upon by socialists like Bogdanov. Marx and Engels themselves seem to concur with this assumption and direction in the conditions for socialist revolution, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that Marx was a German, and very proudly so, and so some of his national ego is to blame for that. Well, Marx and Engels were Germans, I mean... Marx thought that the German Revolution of 1848 would be the predecessor of a larger socialist revolution because Germany had a, quote, far more developed proletariat. He also said that Germans had on their shoulders, again, I quote, heads that could generalize and were the, again, I quote, most theoretical people in Europe and had preserved a theoretical frame of mind. Essentially, Traditional Marxism sees the productivity, technological gains, and material excess generated by capitalism to be the national predecessors to socialism, both engendered in the minds of workers when they realize that it is their labor that has brought all these gains to fruition, and in the modes of production where workers organize to reclaim the wealth that they've been generating. Agrarian pre- or semi-industrial societies like Russia in 1917, therefore, had not met the conditions for this historical change. So Stalin believed that where the events of history didn't create the conditions for socialism, the state, meaning him, should. And so this forcing of the hands of time, if you will, was the rationalization for like his five-year plans and rapid industrialization. Stalin knew that warfare between the great powers would ramp up pretty soon, and if the USSR were not on an aggressive footing, they would be lunch, basically. And if you read Mein Kampf, that is exactly what Hitler intended on doing. But as Thanos would say, destiny still arrives. Stalin's collectivization efforts, including killing thousands of small peasant landholders called kulaks, don't cry for them. His great purge made him unpopular abroad and strengthened criticisms against him within the Soviet Union, especially in Ukraine, where he was never really popular to begin with. And his rapid industrialization schemes included the displacement of ethnic minorities, such as the forced removal of the Tartars from Crimea to Uzbekistan and the deportations of Koreans in the Soviet Union as well as the relocation of other groups that Stalin designated as troublesome, including Poles, Latvians, Estonians, Lithuanians, Volga Germans, Angrian Finns, Crimean Greeks, Turks, and Chechens. All in all, these deportations and relocations affected roughly 6 million people within the Soviet Union, and the reassignment of the term kulak to mean any non-Russian within the Soviet Union deeply hurt the socialist cause as these actions and the justifications for them were seen as no better than Hitler's policies in Nazi-controlled areas where millions of Jews and Slavs were rounded into camps and their homes and land seized for German Ubermenschen. Chapter 5. De-Stalinization, Detente, and Relations with China. 
After Stalin's death in 1953, the USSR began a campaign of de-Stalinization. Stalin's interim successor, Georgi Malenkov, got the ball rolling by privately denouncing many of Stalin's policies. And beginning in 1955, his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, continued the private renunciation with a speech to the Politburo called On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences, which denounced Stalin's cult of personality, the gulag forced labor system, and the treatment of the old Bolsheviks. The public de-Stalinization started with the freeing of prisoners from the gulags, the renaming of places and buildings, and the destruction of monuments, and most importantly, changes in policy, particularly foreign policy. Critics of Khrushchev, Malenkov, and Beria noted how these men rose to power as staunch advocates of Stalinism and helped him carry out a lot of his policies, including the purge, only switching sides when it became politically safe and expedient. As an overture to the Ukrainians, Khrushchev transferred the Crimean Oblast from the Russian SSR to the Ukrainian SSR in 1954. And as we all know, in 2014, it got retransferred back to the Russian SSR. So I just kind of wanted to clear up that Crimea was never Ukrainian in the first place. So I don't even know why they're bitching. He also allowed more liberalization in the arts, although he did make life hell for Boris Pasternak over the novel Dr. Zhivago. He abolished the Troika tribunals, even though he came to power in one, and divided the oblast-level party committees into, like, industrial and agricultural factions so that better decisions could be made at a lower level concerning industry and agriculture. This move was kind of confusing, though, because neither faction had more power than the other, and often that created bureaucratic gridlock within the committees. Many in the Politburo did not like losing control over their oblast in such pivotal areas, but the decentralization of agricultural decision-making did please the agrarians in Ukraine and Poland. So you had like the collectives at the lower level who were actually threshing all the damn wheat who were like, oh, good, I finally get to make some decisions over the shit that I'm growing. Uh, yeah, so... Now, also, Khrushchev is mostly remembered for the Cuban Missile Crisis, but he wasn't rabidly anti-American, and he did send a Soviet delegation to visit the state of Iowa in 1955 to learn more about Iowan-style corn planting. It was also during Khrushchev's time as premier that the USSR became more anti-religious. He ordered the large-scale closing of churches and synagogues and mosques and banned pastoral courses. In adherence to Marxist-Leninism, Khrushchev saw organized religion as having very little practical function in society besides providing an escape from real-world suffering, and also implicated the Russian Orthodox Church as having been complicit in the near-deification of the Tsar entrenching Russian society into absolutism. Mao's China and Khrushchev's Russia deepened their collaborative alliance with, with roughly 7% of Soviet national income going to China between 1954 and 1959. Most of this aid was in technological transfers designed to help uh, develop China's economy after decades of war. However, Mao was against the desalinization and Khrushchev's attempts at rapprochement with Yugoslavia and the United States. By 1960, ideological divides between the USSR and China had deepened to the point where 
all Soviet scientists and attaches were removed from PRC, which means People's Republic of China, and the USSR scrapped its plans to provide China with the plans for making an atomic bomb. I'll go more into the China-USSR beef next episode. Chapter 6. The Khrushchev coup, Brezhnev, and the era of stagnation. In 1963, members of the Soviet Central Committee began planning to oust Khrushchev. Their motives were varied, but the main rationale seems to be that Khrushchev was old, he made too many international faux pas that many felt made the USSR look weak, and he took too many vacations. The Soviet economy was also in a slump, and Khrushchev was blamed for this as well. Popular revolts by socialist leaders in Hungary and Poland had soured most of the committee on Khrushchev's style of leadership. And so while Khrushchev was on vacation in Georgia, Leonid Brezhnev, who had already been appointed at Khrushchev's likely successor when Khrushchev made him deputy party leader in 1964, met with deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers Anastas Mikoyan, who had been a close Khrushchev ally, and Vladimir Simichasny, who was head of the KGB, to get the Central Committee to remove Khrushchev from the premiership. There's, it's, always, it's always a gang of three. It's always three people. From Rome to fucking Russia. Mikoyan wanted to replace him as deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers, but Brezhnev and his faction insisted on Khrushchev's removal from politics altogether, which Khrushchev agreed to when he returned to Moscow. On October 14, 1964, the Central Committee voted to remove Nikita Khrushchev from office Khrushchev declared his assent to the vote and announced his resignation. The committee accepted the resignation and Leonid Brezhnev was elected first secretary and later secretary general. One thing that's pretty consistent about Soviet leadership is that you could count on this successor to repeal, overturn, or otherwise discontinue most of the programs of his predecessor. This was the case from Lenin to Stalin, from Stalin to Khrushchev, and from Khrushchev to Brezhnev. Khrushchev led the de-Stalinization process, which was popular abroad and with the other republics, but less popular within the Russian SSR, which was the largest and most powerful republic in the USSR altogether. Khrushchev was also big on agricultural advancements over military and industrial, and he liberalized the arts considerably. Brezhnev was more conservative in contrast and emphasized placating the Politburo over local administrations and bringing the Soviet Union into military parity with the United States. Brezhnev also increased the USSR's presence in the Middle East and Africa, which was a change from previous leaders who were primarily concerned with Europe. Under Brezhnev, oligarchic power began to solidify in the USSR and a gerontocracy uh, began to form, which is kind of like where you had to pay your dues and basically be ancient to get any positions. And local councils lost their authority to make a lot of decisions. Where Khrushchev had disbanded troikas and curbed the privileges of the KGB, under Brezhnev, writers such as Yuli, Daniel, and Andrei Sinovsky were subjected to public trials for their satirical writings, which led to the Glasnost meeting in December 1965, which kicked off the Soviet dissident movement. While Brezhnev never instigated a purge like Stalin, upwards of 10,000 dissidents were jailed or exiled during the Brezhnev years. 
In the early years of Brezhnev's leadership, the Russian economy grew while he continued to roll back Khrushchev's reforms and consolidate power in Moscow at the expense of the other republics. Brezhnev, like all previous Soviet leaders, believed that the goal of the USSR was to reach full communism, although these men had different ideas as to how to achieve this goal. For Lenin, it was through spurring revolution throughout the world. For Stalin, it was through state-run industrialization and the collective ownership of all land. For Khrushchev, it was through a more decentralized collectivization process that gave more autonomy to regional and local collectives. For Brezhnev, it was through a policy of developed socialism. Developed or real socialism was Soviet-style central planned economies in contrast to the People's Republic of China's Maoist ideology. Under Brezhnev, heavy industry and arms production were given priority while consumer goods production fell. This caused a decline in Soviet standards of living as workers had guaranteed jobs and pay but didn't have anything to buy with their wages. This sometimes included food, as Brezhnev had rolled back Khrushchev's agricultural reforms, and food shortages became more commonplace throughout the USSR. It is generally accepted that the main reason for economic growth early in Brezhnev's term was due to the modest reforms made by the chairman of the Council of Ministers, Alexei Kozygin, in the early 1960s. In a power-sharing agreement that was similar to the Roman triumvirate's Kozygin, Brezhnev, and the chairman of the Presidium, Nikolai Podgorny, were the core of the Soviet government. Brezhnev didn't like destalinization and sought to re-implement it in the economic sector, but Kozygin was able to convince him to accept some of the mixed market reforms, like the ones that were happening in Hungary and Poland, and use their successes to implement his 1965 economic reforms, which introduce profitability factors into the economy. In essence, sort of bringing back the NEP before Stalin shifted the economy to an accelerated planned economy. The use of this system since the 1930s created an enterprise system that valued volume of production over like innovation and quality of production. Since managers could sometimes double their salary through overproduction, so they basically would game the system. They would project low estimates of production, and then they would do double that. And then they would get hella, hella points for that and bonuses and vacations and stuff like that. I'll spare everybody the details, as Kosygin's 1965 and 1973 reforms are pretty dull. But the gist is this. Stalin wanted to precipitate full communism by completely removing the private market from the Soviet economy, and he wanted to use the power of the state to industrialize quickly since there was a war coming and he needed to prep for it. After World War II, the USSR stayed in this, on this wartime footing economy-wise, where heavy industry was prioritized over consumer goods and agriculture. Now... Because Khrushchev faced steep opposition from the Politburo, who didn't want to delegate more authority to regional and local councils. After Brezhnev and Co. ousted him, they attempted to bring the economy back to this fully centralized, planned economy, but they also overemphasized heavy industry and arms, and Soviet productivity and quality of life suffered. 
So Kosygin tried to do some quick maths and reintroduce some market reforms like profit margins, commercial rents, and price adjustments to reflect production costs to reinvigorate the economy. But he mostly only succeeded in making consumer goods more expensive, but he failed to increase productivity in the ways that he promised. Brezhnev and the Politburo became increasingly anti-reform, while elsewhere in the Soviet Union, other countries like Hungary were just saying fuck it and were implementing reforms like the new economic mechanism. It sounds similar to the new economic policy enacted by Lenin in 1921 because essentially that's what it is. Led by communist leader Janos Kedar, the NEM was a form of mixed market socialism, with Hungarians able to own small farms and pay taxes in the form of agricultural products, and small consumer businesses allowed to operate while large industries were nationalized. This form of socialism was in contrast to the Stalinist model and made Hungary the happiest barrack in barracks communism. The NEM continued until the revolutions of 1989. Now, Defenders of Soviet-style socialism will point out that the USSR was more productive and technologically superior to the United States in Western Europe from 1928 to 1973, and they are correct in this statement. This is all the more impressive when you consider that the USSR was ravaged by the Russian Civil War of the 20s, the Great Depression of the 30s, and World War II of the 40s. The USSR also received less than half the international aid than Western Europe received following World War II, which made Stalin all the more determined for the Soviet Union to succeed anyway. In terms of industrial capacity and productivity, the Soviet Union produced more steel, pig iron, tractors, and cement than any other country. However, as impressive as this is, by 1973, computing was the wave of the future, and Brezhnev's insistence on increasing military uh, spending at the expense of consumer goods and scientific research was starting to take its toll on the Soviet economy, and they fell behind the curve in technological advancements. More dissident scientists left the USSR between 1968 and 1975 than at any other time, including the height of Stalinism, most immigrating to the U.S. or Western Europe, which helped the Western European American technological advantage over the Soviet Union. The USSR was also hit hard by the oil crisis of the 1970s, as the Soviet Union had long depended on their oil exports and also spent billions subsidizing the oil usage of the constituent republics in the Eastern Bloc. One of the reasons why Brezhnev agreed to leave Poland and Hungary alone as they implemented market reforms was because they agreed to a reduction in that oil subsidy. Chapter 7, Gorbachev, Glasnost, and Perestroika. Now, although the title refers to Mikhail Gorbachev, he was not Leonid Brezhnev's immediate successor. That honor goes to Yuri Andropov, who held many titles in the USSR, but is best known for serving as the head of the Committee for State Security, or KGB, from 1964 to 1982. Andropov was a conservative hardliner and also the guy who created misinformation and disinformation campaigns. So, you know, all that Russiagate talk and Cambridge Analytica and all that crap, you can thank Andropov for all of that. He was infamous for his role in the suppression of dissent. He played a key part in the suppression of the 1956 Hungarian revolt 
And as the director of the KGB, he created a network of psychiatric hospitals to, quote, defend the Soviet government and socialist order, unquote, from political dissidents. Andropov also continued the Soviet-Afghan war, which he initially opposed in 1979, upholding the Brezhnev document, doctrine sorry, that any threat to a socialist nation in the Eastern Bloc was a threat to them all and thus required the intervention of other socialist states. It sounds a lot like the Bush doctrine, to be honest, except socialist. Of course, the main issue with the use of the doctrine here is that Afghanistan is not an Eastern Bloc state that had signed a mutual aid agreement with the Soviet government. So to many, including Andropov, the war was viewed skeptically as an invasion and a deviation from socialist principles. During Brezhnev's tenure as general secretary, Andropov and Mikhail Suzlov had convinced Brezhnev not to intervene in Poland's solidarity movement, which marked the end of the Brezhnev doctrine. Andropov also attempted to tackle corruption in the Soviet system by investigating longtime officials and penalizing truancy in the workforce. Unlike Brezhnev, Andropov chose to pursue complaints of violation of party discipline and labor violations. He dismissed high-level ministers and party officials and held criminal cases that gave the general public the idea that the government was being responsive to their complaints. While Andropov was marginally successful in instigating a change in managerial accountability, he also used his anti-corruption campaign to eliminate political opposition. In the Eastern Bloc, the Solidarity Movement in Poland continued to gain ground and Hungary's mixed market reforms were moving the country further away from Soviet control. In foreign policy, Andropov was faced with the U.S. President Ronald Reagan launching a second Cold War, even though the first one wasn't done, in which Reagan vowed to simply outspend the Soviet Union, both in arms and aid, to weaken Soviet influence abroad. Andropov's response was to increase military spending to 70% of the national budget, increasing aid and arms to DPRK, which is North Korea, Syria, Iraq, Libya, South Yemen, the PLO, and Cuba. Are you starting to see why the designated hotspots of today's geopolitical landscape are located where they are? In response to the USSR, the CIA started training the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets and the Afghan Socialist Party. These fighters later organized themselves into the Taliban in yet another example of U.S.-backed proxies later becoming U.S. enemies. Andropov had never been in favor of the Afghan war, and in 1983, Soviet dignitary Yuli Kivinsky was met with, met with U.S. diplomats to try and negotiate a withdrawal and ceasefire and also repair relations with the U.S. and reduce the number of nuclear missiles in Europe, most of which were aimed in Moscow's direction. They were unable to come to an agreement since many in the Politburo were not interested in compromise and assumed that anti-nuclear sentiment in the U.S. and peace protests would force Americans to capitulate. Uh, I don't know why they got that idea. The Soviets had a lot of misplaced faith in the American electorate because, yeah, no, this was the 80s, baby. Greed was good. But of course, that didn't happen, and instead, Reagan initiated the Strategic Defense Initiative, which would provide a missile defense shield to protect America from attack by ICBMs. 
In reality, the SDI, which underwent several name changes before settling on the Missile Defense Agency in 2002, was a ring of offensive weapons that pretty much encircled the Soviet Union, who at the time did not have the technological capabilities to mount a similar effort aimed in the U.S. direction. So in 1983, Andropov ordered a work stoppage on all space-based weapons. Now, despite the United States' increasingly hostile posturing versus the USSR's relatively tamely responses to this aggression, the USSR continued to be characterized as an evil empire in the West and in the developing world, where organizations like the WTO, IMF, and USAID took over, overtook the USSR in providing aid, although these countries would largely live to regret accepting those aid, pack, those aid packages. In short, 18 years of ideological stagnation during the Brezhnev years had left the Soviet Union technologically behind and unable to compete globally. Andropov's tenure as the general secretary ended with his death in February 1984, and he was succeeded by Konstantin Chernenko, who was as ill as Andropov was and died after only a year in office. Chernenko was then succeeded by Mikhail Gorbachev, Andropov's protege, who Andropov had actually requested to be his successor, and who had been inspired by Andropov to eliminate corruption in the Soviet system. Gorbachev was, like his successors, more or less ideologically committed to Marxist-Leninism and as such was committed to restoring it within the USSR. Gorbachev tried to be less formal and more open in his style of leadership, but he knew he would face opposition from the Politburo for most of his reforms, and so he tried to remove some of the oldest members or give them new positions that would not interfere with his reform programs. Within his first year of office, Gorbachev replaced many of the oldest members of the Politburo with younger men who had been frustrated by the lack of mobility within the party under Brezhnev and Andropov. One of these men was Boris Yeltsin, who would become the first president of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev is best known for his policies of glasnost and perestroika. Perestroika actually happened first, but perestroika and glasnost doesn't have the same ring to it, so it is what it is. Perestroika means restructuring, and in practice, it was a complex series of reforms designed to address the low quality of Soviet consumer goods and low productivity. The first stage of perestroika was uskorinia, probably got that wrong, which means acceleration. And it was an effort to boost Russian production of consumer goods and machinery. To boost agricultural output, he merged several industries into one industry called Agroparm, but that venture was deemed unsuccessful by 1985. Initially, he enacted reforms to prop up the state-planned economy, not move to market socialism. But by late 1986, he was warming up to the idea of market socialism, using Lenin's new economic policy as an example. One major reform in this direction was allowing collective farms to sell up to 30% of their produce direct to shops instead of turning it all over to the state for redistribution. He also tried to lead a temperance movement, banning the production of alcoholic beverages, banning the sale of alcohol before 2 p.m., raising the drinking age to 21, and increasing the price of alcohol. Now, while crime rates did fall and life expectancies did rise by about 5% during this two-year period beginning in 1986, 
moonshine production increased, as did organized crime rackets, just like it did in the United States during Prohibition. The second stage was glasnost, which means openness. And glasnost policies were designed to bring greater transparency to the way that the Soviet state ran. Gorbachev allowed more criticism of the government in the news, freed political dissidents, and appointed historian Yuri Afanasyev as head of the state historical archive faculty so that records could be unsealed and Soviet history could be reassessed. What Gorbachev thought would happen was Russians would be inspired by Glasnost and thus support Perestroika. What did happen was hardliners were deeply uncomfortable with press freedoms and how they might affect law and order. And everyday Russians were very upset at how much they had not been told over the years. Ironically, one of Gorbachev's biggest critics was Yeltsin. Gorbachev thought Yeltsin was a ham. Yeltsin thought Gorbachev was patronizing and they were both right. Things reached ahead in March 1986 at the 27th Party Congress when Yeltsin took the floor to accuse Gorbachev and the Politburo of not doing enough to reform the USSR, after which Gorbachev opened the floor to rebuttal and many committee members denounced Yeltsin. Gorbachev then called Yeltsin politically illiterate and then Yeltsin got upset and resigned from his post as secretary of the general committee and from the Politburo and the two hated each other from that point on. Chapter 8. The Breakdown of the Eastern Bloc In April 1986, Chernobyl happened and the Soviet bureaucracy in typical form did all they could to downplay the disaster by feeding Gorbachev false information. Later, after having to evacuate 336,000 people from the area, Gorbachev gave a televised speech about the disaster where he used it as an example of a culture of shoddy workmanship and inertia in the Soviet Union. For the rest of the year, Gorbachev was increasingly public in his criticisms of the Soviet systems. In foreign policy, Gorbachev sought an end to the Soviet-Afghan war by withdrawing Russian troops and encouraging the socialist Afghan leader to go into a power-sharing agreement with the opposition. He tried to work with Ronald Reagan to get SDI scrapped and a toning down of the rhetoric on nuclear war, but ultimately Reagan would not agree to scrap SDI. But Gorbachev did dial down the USSR's military budget, believing that the USSR could not reasonably hope to win an arms race against the United States. Gorbachev also extended a hand outside of the Eastern Bloc with socialist and socialist-leaning leaders like Muammar Gaddafi and Syria's Hafez al-Assad and Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi. However, he felt that the Eastern Bloc states, Cuba and North Korea, had become a drain on the USSR and that the partnership was very unequal. He also improved relations with China, signing a $14 billion trade agreement in 1985 and reducing troops at the Soviet-Chinese border. Gorbachev continued reforming the Soviet Union, with his primary focus being economic reform and eliminating corruption. He felt that the party bosses and managers had stolen some of the autonomy from the workers and tried to reincorporate the workers into the production and decision-making process. Gorbachev began allowing limited foreign press and networks into the country. He encouraged objective and fair criticism and reporting and allowed greater tolerance of religion. Gorbachev also had to deal with rising tensions between ethnic minorities in the state. 
The Tartars wanted resettlement in Crimea. The ethnically Armenian citizens of Nagorno-Karabakh wanted to be part of the Armenian SSR, which means Soviet Socialist Republic, by the way, rather than the Azerbaijani SSR. And the Baltic SSRs, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, declared politically political autonomy from Russia and restricted Russian immigration. Gorbachev's response was tepid. Like, he promised the people of Nagorno-Karabakh that he would move them to the Armenian SSR, but then he didn't do it because he felt like it would set off a chain reaction of defections and every village and town that was of a different ethnicity would want to be moved to the nearest SSR over and it would just be too much. Um... He did apologize to the Tartars, but he didn't resettle them in Crimea or pay redress for their forced removal. And his visits to Tallinn, Estonia, and Vilnius, Lithuania did not stop the nationalist protests. He also removed 500,000 troops from the Eastern and Central, from Eastern and Central Europe. Now, some Eastern Bloc leaders like Hungary's Janos Kardar liked Gorbachev's reform. Like, Kardar took that as a sign to reopen the border between Austria and Hungary. Now, while others like Romania's Nicolae Sesescu were furious because Sesescu had utilized uh, Soviet troops to brutalize his own people for a long time. 1989 was the year of revolution across Eastern Europe. One by one, socialist governments in Poland, Hungary, Romania, East Germany, Bulgaria, and Czechoslovakia were overthrown and multi-party elections were held. In Romania, Nicolae Ceausescu, who uh, Gorbachev personally disliked, was executed, but otherwise the protests were pretty peaceful. In East Germany, local officials allowed their citizens to cross the Berlin Wall and Gorbachev praised that decision. Interestingly enough, across Western Europe, leaders like Thatcher in the UK and Mitterrand in France did not want German reunification, which Gorbachev also didn't want. The rationale was that a unified Germany would soon become an economic power, but West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl insisted on rapid reunification, which became a reality in 1991. With German reunification, the opening of the border between Austria and Hungary, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Cold War was declared officially over. Chapter 9, The Rising of Yeltsin and the Setting of Gorbachev Back in the Soviet Union, Gorbachev was feeling pressure from both hardline Marxist-Leninists and liberalizers led by his archenemy, Boris Yeltsin. To circumvent the Politburo's removal of him as general secretary, he transformed his office into a presidency and held an election by the Congress of People's Deputies in which he was the only candidate. The Congress then replaced the Politburo with an 18-member presidential council and repealed Article 6 of the Soviet Constitution, which made the Communist Party of the Soviet Union the ruling party thus undermining the de jure nature of the one-party state. De facto, though, it still was for the time being. In the Supreme Soviet, or Russian SFSR, an alliance called Democratic Russia did well in picking up many seats. Among the winners was Boris Yeltsin, who became the parliament's chair. One misconception about the Soviet Union and socialist countries in general is that they don't allow elections, and nothing could be further from the truth. 
The Soviet Union had a vast and deep bureaucracy and nothing hindered anyone from running for some office at local, regional, or national level. People in Soviet states were literally always voting for something, although corruption and collusion amongst party insiders ensured the votes did very little to affect changes in the bureaucracy. Sound familiar? Yeltsin began to overtake Gorbachev in terms of popularity, something that Gorbachev did not understand, stating, he drinks like a fish, he's inarticulate, he comes up with devil knows what, he's like a worn out record. Again, sound familiar? But none of that mattered to many Russians, especially those in urban centers. By January 1990, the Supreme Soviet, I'm sorry, the Russian Supreme Soviet was in Yeltsin's control. And in June 1990, it declared that the Russian Republic's laws took precedence over the Soviet central government. This attracted Russian nationalists, and Gorbachev reluctantly had to allow the Russian SFSR, God, that's a lot to say, to form its own Communist Party as a branch of the Soviet Union's Communist Party. Gorbachev attended the First Party Congress of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, which is what SFSR means, but soon left as it was filled with hardliners who did not like his reformist politics. At the 28th General Party Congress, Gorbachev was re-elected as party leader and promised to compromise with the liberalizers coming up with an economic package called the Five Days Program. It included further decentralization of economic planning and some privatization. Gorbachev likened the package to modern socialism, but most hardliners were unhappy about it and thought it was capitalist bullshit. The Russian SFSR Communist Party backed the 500 Days program, but the overall party refused to back it and it was abandoned. This led to Yeltsin giving a speech in October 1990 saying that Russia would no longer accept a subordinate position to the Soviet Union, which is kind of weird because when you think of all the Soviet republics, the one that kind of had the most clout, power, and pretty much all the leaders were like heavy on the Russia, it would be the Russian SFSR. But yeah, he was tired of them being subordinate to the Soviet Union. Now this led to rumblings of dissent in other Soviet republics like in the Baltic states. And by November 1990, many were calling for Gorbachev to step down. By August 1990, a group of senior Communist Party officials called the Gang of Eight attempted to stage a coup d'etat to seize control of the Soviet Union. The coup soon realized they didn't have enough support to overthrow Gorbachev and ended their coup on August 21, 1991. Gorbachev then made a speech pledging to reform the Soviet Communist Party and two days later resigned as the general secretary of the party and called on the Central Committee to disband. Yeltsin, ever the showman, continued to denounce Gorbachev and subsequently banned the Russian Communist Party, the same party that had brought him to power within the Russian SFSR. Gorbachev was at this point running out of steam. In October 1991, Gorbachev went to Madrid to negotiate an Israeli-Palestinian peace, and while he was out of the Soviet Union, Yeltsin suspended all Communist Party activities on Russian soil, closing offices and raising the pre-revolution flag alongside the Soviet Union flag in front of the Red Square. 
In the final weeks of 1991, Yeltsin began to take over all the remnants of Soviet government in Russia, including the Kremlin. Gorbachev tried to propose a new treaty of union, but he found very little support as the leaders of various republics found themselves succumbing to nationalist pressure. Yeltsin claimed that he would veto any union, preferring a weak confederation. Only the leaders of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, now the Republic of Kyrgyzstan, agreed with Gorbachev, and in a December referendum in Ukraine, 80% voted for independence, which was crushing for Gorbachev as he had always counted on his popularity in Ukraine, being half Ukrainian himself. Yeltsin kept up the pressure by meeting with the Ukrainian president and the Belarusian president and signing the Belaveza Accords, which declared the Soviet Union had ceased to exist and forming a Commonwealth of Independent States. Gorbachev had to find out about this from a phone call from the Ukrainian president after the fact. He had to rely on, Gorbachev had to rely on public opinion to keep the Soviet Union alive, but it was too late for that. On December 20th, 1991, 11 of 12 leaders of the remaining republics, Georgia decided not to attend, met in Alma-Ata, Kazakhstan, and formally dismantled the Soviet Union and established the CIS. They also agreed that Gorbachev would resign. He agreed to do so as soon as he saw the CIS was a reality. Yeltsin was tasked with overseeing the transfer of power to the successor republics, and Gorbachev resigned on December 25th, leaving the Kremlin for good by December 29th. By midnight on December 31st, 1991, the Soviet Union had ceased to exist. Chapter 10, and now what is to be done? The, so- the Communist Party of the Soviet Union disbanded after being banned by Boris Yeltsin in 1991 and the fall of the Soviet Union, but its successor, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, is the second largest party in Russia after Russia United. In the immediate aftermath of the fall of the USSR, Russia was a kleptocratic free-for-all, and many oligarchs took over what had long been state-run enterprises, such as Gazprom, the largest natural gas supplier to all of Russia and most of Europe and Turkey. When Vladimir Putin was elected president for the first time in 1997, he swore to break the oligarch's hold over Russia's most valuable assets, and in large part he was successful. Gazprom, for example, is once again state-owned and controlled, and what oligarchs remained are all in his thrall and his pocket. Culturally, Russia has undergone a process of decommunization, with more emphasis being put on Russian history during the Tsarist regime. Stalin, however, has seen a resurgence in popularity, although to some extent, while Stalinism stopped being, while Stalinization and Stalinism stopped being explicitly endorsed by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Stalin himself never really stopped being popular for many uh, Russians. His long tenure cast a shadow over the Soviet Union that none of his successors could really escape, and it still defines Soviet-style socialism to this day, maybe even more so than Leninism. Lenin is still revered, albeit not at the same levels as seen in the 1950s and 60s, and his tomb is still one of the most popular sites in all of Russia. Putin has admitted to never actually being a communist, ideologically at least, he pledged loyalty to the party because that's what you had to do to get a good job in the USSR. 
And he has set Russia on a course that is decidedly crony capitalist. Even still, he has brought a level of political stability to Russia that had not been seen since the days of Brezhnev and Andropov. And so he remains very popular in Russia. Next episode, I will talk about Asian and Middle Eastern socialism, focusing on China, Vietnam, India, Cambodia, and Pan-Arabism and Nasserism. Join me next time for more... 